Welcome to my podcast, What Would Jane Do?, where we find early 19th century solutions to very 21st century problems. And this is episode three. Jane Austen is going to take on that thorny issue of gender identity. This subject is going to take us on a whirlwind tour of the different gender identities available in the Jane Austen area from Harriet Freak to the Chevalier Dion with a little drop in on Shakespeare. Then we're going to look at Jane Austen's own questioning of gender going from Lady Susan at the beginning of her writing career to persuasion right at the very end. And finally, we're going to try and weigh up where Jane Austen would have come down on the whole question of how we fit into our various gender identities. But now, let's have a look at what was available in her time. Now, I think it's fair to say that almost every era you can think of has questioned gender identity. Uh, It obviously depends what the constructed identities are as to what they're questioning, but you can see it all throughout history. But what was going on at the time of Jane Austen? So we're talking the end of the 18th century to the first few decades of the 19th century. So for Jane Austen, there was actually two places that I immediately could think of where she would come across somebody who was challenging the gender identities of her day. The first is in the works of one of her favourite novelists, the author Maria Edgeworth, And the book in particular is a novel called Belinda, published at the turn of the century. And in this book, there's a fascinating character called Harriet Freak. Now, that obviously, listening to me saying that, you immediately are thinking of the spelling F-R-E-A-K. In the novel, it's written F-R-E-K-E. But clearly, there's the idea within that character that she is in some way transgressive. Um, she's challenging the boundaries of her own day. She dresses in men's clothing and she's larger than life and she's a troublemaker. Uh, she's also a bit of a villainess, villain. Um, she's described as having bold masculine arms. Uh, she also is perhaps more damningly uh, described as having no conscience. So she was always entirely at ease, never more so than in male attire. And she also has this rather stirring um, cry, which she has, which is fun and freak forever. Huzzah! (laughs) So she's a barrel of laughs. She certainly enters into the novel um, as someone who causes change. You wonder really quite how much of a friend she actually is. Um, But anyway, she stirs things up. She also is in, uh, this is a bit of a plot spoiler here, but she is reprimanded within the world of the book by something which happens to her at the end. Uh, and she gets caught in a very literal trap, a bear trap, which um, injures her leg. And there is some discussion amongst the critics as to whether or not this means that she, the doctor who treats her says, oh, you can't wear um, men's clothing anymore because your leg is spoiled. Because in the idea that men's... Um, breeches were more revealing than women's attire 
Um, but on the other hand, that is a male doctor saying that to her. So who knows? Maybe she'll say fun and freak forever and, and go back to wearing um, her, her favoured clothing. But anyway, there is this sense that cross-dressing, a, a woman being a man, is something which um, is both exciting and stirring, but dangerous. So that's one kind of gender questioning image which Jane Austen had access to. And of course, the other one, which is more positive, um, is the many Shakespearean characters um, that she would have read in the family setting of Steventon. They would have read the plays. And you have to look at someone like Viola in Twelfth Night, who uh, dresses up as her twin brother, um, takes the role of Cesario and falls in love with the Duke. And there's lots of humour about her when, when the Countess Olivia falls in love with her. So there's all this byplay going on where you know that it's a boy playing a woman, playing a man, being fallen in love with whilst her brother is also knocking about. So there's this gender fluid <laughs> uh, world going on there because the, the Viola and her brother, Sebastian, are twins and supposed to look very much like each other. So that, again, has this idea of what's the difference between the man and the woman in this case. Um, not a huge amount, really, because they're attractive to people of both sexes. Anyway, so that's all great fun. And in the Austin's day, there was an actress called Dora Jordan, who was hugely praised for playing these so-called breeches roles, not only because it was a chance to look at her very shapely legs, but also because... Of the, I think the energy she brought to those roles, she was known as the comic muse and is painted as such compared to Mrs Siddons, who's painted as the tragic muse uh, in a famous portrait of her. So crossing gender releases a sort of energy that is attractive and dangerous in the day. But I suppose we also need to look at it on the flip side, which is when a man is acting as a woman. You get that, of course, um, as a comic turn in Belinda, there's a man who does that. But also in real life, I imagine Jane would have been aware of the example of um, an absolutely fascinating chap called the Chevalier Dion, who was a, a diplomat and a spy and a soldier. But he spent the latter part of his life as a woman living in London, and he's possibly the first openly transvestite male. Who knows? History doesn't go down to that minute detail, does it? But perhaps the most famous and possibly the first uh, in the modern era. He was fascinatingly uh, a bit of a celebrity. Uh, he was there because he'd fallen out with the French authorities. So this was his sort of penalty was to stay dressing as a woman which he wanted to do anyway so that's all a bit of a mixed message there anyway but we know what he looks like because there is a portrait of him which was exhibited at the royal academy in 1791 and it was so popular that copies were made of it and in fact you can go and see one of those copies in the if you're in london that is uh in the national portrait gallery because they bought that in 2012 this is a copy of the 
original portrait. And this copy was done by a theatrical painter called Thomas Stewart. So you can see there's a, still a link here between gender crossing and the theatre. But here's somebody doing it in real life. All very interesting to unpick that. And that is a, is a fantastic portrait. I've got a postcard of it here. Interestingly, this was found by a London dealer. It had been mislabeled as a portrait of a woman. Now, if you look very carefully, you can see he definitely, definitely has um, a five o'clock shadow. Uh, it's a man in a wig, isn't it? But because he was wearing women's clothing, it was assumed it had to be a woman. But no, this is the Chevalier Dion, uh, a larger-than-life character who could both wield a sword and twitch his petticoats. Um, so he's, he's a great fun character. So another gender-busting um, individual from Jane Austen's day. So that would lead us on to the question about what does Jane Austen herself think of all of this? I can't, correct me if I'm wrong, I can't think of an incident where somebody does cross-dress uh, in that way or but there is certainly a questioning of which is cross-dressing is the absolute most obvious way of ch challenging gender isn't it but with Jane Austen I think there's something more subtle going on she is questioning the roles that women and men play in society and that is a major theme in her works there's almost too much to unpack here um but let's start with something from the beginning of her writing career and then let's look at something at the end, uh, understanding there's much more to say about the things going across that particular divide. So starting with um, Lady Susan, which you may not have read, it's... Um, here we have Lady Susan. It's one of her early works and it's an epistolary novel. There is a film of this, um, if you'd like to have a look at what filmmakers have recently made of this material. But Lady Susan is unusual in that she is this radical woman troublemaker, a 35-year-old widow with a daughter. And what she is doing is that she is playing the role of of woman absolutely to the hilt she's kind of distorting it because really there's a question here if the energy she brings to it breaks those roles and she's in the early letters she's described as the the most accomplished coquette in England she's playing this game of flirting with people um spoiling people's love affairs pushing her daughter towards you know, certain suitors. And that sort of highly manipulative woman ends up feeling like a Machiavellian man. It's an odd, it's an odd experience to read it. I would, it doesn't, it's only short. So, you know, do read it and see what you think. And it's a character that you don't really find at the front of a Jane Austen novel afterwards. You might see these kind of energetic women who break the gender roles by being, you know, sort of almost too much. Mary Crawford is that kind of person in um, Mansfield Park who has that manipulative side to how she plays on her gender. So 
I think Jane Austen is aware of the dark side to femininity, what it can hide. But anyway, I said that we would link Lady Susan from the start to somebody from the end. And where I'm going now is I'm going to Persuasion because Anne Elliot in Persuasion, before the novel starts, she took the advice of an older woman not to accept the proposal in marriage of the young Captain Wentworth before he was a captain. And this turns out to be her sorrow and her missed opportunity. But she was obeying the things that women were supposed to do, which was not take undue risks, to listen to the advice and obey the the authority figures in their life. Lady Russell is a sort of replacement for her mother and her father. Um, <laughs> yeah, her father isn't that interested in uh, being the father. So it was Lady Russell stepped into that breach. But it's quite interesting how the balance is reached at the end. So she, Anne Elliot, gets her second chance at love. Hooray! And in the sort of settling of the scores at the end of Persuasion, there's an interesting exchange with Captain Wentworth about what happened when he first um, proposed to her and whether or not she was wrong to have listened to somebody else when she was just a, a youngster. She, and Anne says, If I was wrong in yielding to persuasion once, remember it was to persuasion exerted on the side of safety, not of risk. When I yielded, I thought it was to duty. But no duty could be called in aid here. In marrying a man indifferent to me, all risk would have been incurred and all duty violated. So she's saying um, that she refused Captain Wentworth when he was young because it seemed the safe thing to do. She's not interested in marrying her cousin, uh, Mr. Elliot, because he doesn't care for her. So that actually is truly the risky behaviour, is to go with somebody who doesn't love you. That's interesting, isn't it? That sort of undercuts that whole forced marriage thing. And she's allowed now, there is no duty violated to follow her heart. And Captain Wentworth actually says, perhaps I should have reasoned thus, but I could not. So his anger at being rejected early on meant that he stormed off and didn't come back um so there is an image of what could have happened if he had just asked her a year or two later and not let it fester so Anne is Anne is sort of saying well how can I how can I live as a woman um was it wrong to listen I was told I was to listen maybe there are arguments for that so it's a negotiation of her gender role not an outright rejection and I think that's why, you know, Jane Austen is very subtle. She's looking at the roles that women are given in society and then asks how can they play them so that it's actually the best for them as a human. You can see this again with, of course, um, the discussions of class that go on in Pride and Prejudice and discussions of privilege in the case of Emma in, you know, the novel Emma. So she's looking at these things which seem to be like set terms, unpacking them, examining them, 
and asking how does it benefit that individual. And I think maybe this is where we come round to seeing what her take, what would Jane do about gender identity today? I think she would really unpack our assumptions about gender, look at them, lay them out there, question them, see what's good about them, see what's bad about them, and then work out what is best for the individual. I think perhaps, to be frank, you know, if we if we take Jane Austen from back in the day, lift her out and put her alive this moment now, she would be amazed, um, shocked at the changes in society. So that's really not a fair test, is it? Uh, but if she was born today and growing up and being a writer today, that's where I think she would come down. Um, society has moved so quickly that it would be hard to expect somebody born in the 18th century to understand the possibilities of the role models of the 19th, of the not 19th century, 21st century. I think, in fact, she would relish the opportunity to investigate it and find it really exciting that we are looking right down at the fundamentals and questioning what it means. So if you're thinking about gender identity, I'd, I'd take a leaf out of her book, look at what's out there, look what's available to us and unpack it, examine it, work out what it is best for you as a human, just like Anne did about her choices when she was young. Uh, and remember, there's always a do-over. You're not stuck in the past. That is ultimately the lesson of persuasion, isn't it? Which happens to be, I think, my favourite Jane Austen. It's certainly up there with Pride and Prejudice. Anyway, let me know what you think about this in any comments you like to leave. And don't forget, until next time, when in doubt, it's always wise to ask, what would Jane do?